Today's scripture is from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace God has given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Please be seated. Please be seated. Thank you so much. My friends, it's a delight to be with you in worship this morning. As Reverend Bond told Julie Koenig that her harp was the thing that dreams were made of, I figure I'm stepping into the pulpit to preach a sermon, which must be the things that nightmares are made of. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. If you're like me, You get very little time in your week for reflection unless you carve it out intentionally. You're busy, you go from this place to that, you have this worry or that, this plan to make, this item on your box to check off. Isn't it sad that so little time in our lives is given to contemplation, to stabilizing our own heart and our heartbeat with the greater heartbeat of God? I think so. So I'm going to provide you this opportunity for just a moment's reflection of breathing and centering yourself before we hear from the Word of God. If you will, with me, close your eyes and begin to breathe in and out. Gently fill in the air into your lungs. Now exhale all the air from your lungs. Breathe in the breath of God. Our God, as St. Augustine reminds us, that our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We are restless this morning and at any time that we feel a need to reach out to you. We are restless. We look for things of this world to give our lives meaning. We look to other places to find purpose. We, we look to the things and the people and all the stuff of life to fill that God-shaped vacuum that's in each of us. We confess that it's only you who can fill such voids in our heart. This morning, we ask that you fill it once more with your Holy Spirit. And I confess, God, 
Whether anyone else here knows it or not, you and I know that without, without you I can do nothing. So we pray that your Holy Spirit fall manifest in this place and everywhere my voice may be heard, that in spite of all of our prejudices and thoughts, that in spite of myself, these words prepared will be words that bring freshness to our spiritual lives and vitality to the steps we walk. It is in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we pray, and God's people together say, Amen. In the order of worship, you'll no doubt notice that we have our inaugural Fred Craddock preaching lectureship. Our first speaker there is Reverend Dr. Ted Smith of Candler over at Emory University. We last had him with us several years ago before the pandemic. We met with him as a group of elders and deacons up in Brasstown Valley for a leadership retreat, talking about ministry in an increasingly secular age. And before he had any time with the whole group of leaders, he wanted to know from me what was the congregation like and how was I doing in it. I breathed a deep exhale and I said, whew, it's hard. He looked at me with compassion through his glasses and nodded his head. He said, say more. I said, it's hard. I've never been in a congregation that was more diverse in all my life. Now, I've served congregations that were more ethnically diverse, and skin tones and colors look more diverse than this. I've served congregations that had much wider disparity in economic background, but I had never till now, this period of time that I've been here in Atlanta, served a congregation with such ideological diversity as this one. He said, tell me more. I said, well, you know, there are people in our church who quite openly and loudly feel the burn. That was the expression for people of the day who were really big supporters of Bernie Sanders. This gives you an idea about when this was happening. And then there are people there who want to make America great again and think Trump's the way to do it. That's obvious to me as well. And every other which way in between. Every other option, mixes of options, separation between public thought and private thought, acceptances of this thing or that, and so on. And I said, it's all just so very much. And nobody wants you to preach politics from the pulpit unless it's their politics. And he said, of course, that's all churches. It's true. And then I said, you know what really bothers me is, is when, when a church decides that it's a progressive church or it decides that it's a conservative church. So often, we either start from an ideological point of view, progressive or conservative, and then we begin to reflect on the theology second to that or third to that or fourth to that. It seems to me that we should wrestle with theological orthodoxy that's really expensive speak for the theology that brings right teaching right from the first of the church to now as, as best as we can understand it, as human communities have wrestled with it through the centuries and across different countries, that we should be a part of this great tradition and the living witness of that great tradition in community as we engage the biblical texts. 
engage the doctrines of our church, that we should be about that and then figure out best we can with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, how that plays out in our outreach in the world. And at times I'm willing to bet that if we start first with this theological center, our actions may look more progressive and at times they may look more conservative. But this is all idealistic, and I admitted my idealism to Reverend Dr. Ted Smith, and then I think I just slumped my shoulders down and my head down, feeling the difficulty and the weight of pastoring a congregation that had many different points of view, held to them strongly, were willing to fight for them, and even disfellowship for them, because we are a snapshot of this world. And all you have to do is read the most recent Pew research to find out that people don't want to go to church with people who vote differently than them. And I said, it's hard. I said it again. And Ted goes, yeah, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful? I, I thought he might have a critical word to say about the heartbeat of our congregation, or maybe that he might question my ability to preach and proclaim a message or lead into a, a point of view. But he simply said, it's a good, it's a hard job to hold that together, but it's a good one. It's a worthwhile one. Boy, you get to be with the mix of expressions of Christianity every week, and you get the good, beautiful job of trying to hold it all together. It's tough in our world. St. Paul wrote to churches like this all the time. Here's the church at Rome where St. Paul writes to a group of people who are broken up by all sorts of divisions. We think that the first Christians in Rome were a group of Jewish Christians, and then they were sent away. And then the church became populated by Gentile Christians, and then maybe the Jewish Christians had come back, and then there was infighting to keep Sabbath or not to keep Sabbath, to be circumcised or not to be circumcised. What do we think of all this law language, the business that God has given our people from the very, very foundations of a covenant? How does that include Gentile people and what should they observe of it? Oh, so many points of view, so many different experiences of grace with Jesus. I mean, right here, we have so many different experiences of how Jesus' grace has come to us. How do we make sense of all that? And Paul writes them letters, like here at the church in Rome, to try to help them walk through it. And in this letter, in particular, he talks about being chosen and elect before God, but then he says, don't you know you're a royal priesthood? See, he's saying that you're a special class of people. You're the class meant to represent God to the world and the world to God. But then further he says, be transformed. You who are Christians in this community, be people of transformation. I think whenever the Christian church has done its best in human history, it's been countercultural. That is to say that it goes against the grain of the broader culture. But whenever the broader culture has decided what progress looks like, 
The church hasn't simply walked lockstep with it when it's been effective. It's, it's done the strange thing that the church does. At the very foundation of our church, it was, it was acceptable in parts of the Roman world to discard babies with deformities. The church was countercultural in raising said children. The church ought to be countercultural in the fact that it does not pay allegiance to Donald Trump or Joe Biden or should always pledge allegiances secondarily at best to anything other than Christ. Christ is the one who owes or receives all of our allegiance. We owe it to Christ who has made us new, who shed his blood for us, who's made us his own. And we ought to live such ways by being changed, by being transformed. We don't just fit like a neat little puzzle piece in a neat little puzzle called our world. And then he talks about this renewal of the mind, this transformation of the mind. I had a professor once who said this. He goes, I think Christians ought to be the best thinkers in the world. I agree. Here's what he didn't mean. He didn't mean that people with a certain level IQ should supernaturally be able to beat Albert Einstein in a maths quiz. That's not what he meant. But he meant that Christians ought to be loving God with their minds so much that it's constantly being renewed, transformed, and able to think through bigger concepts of the world. So if God has made all things, then everything is theological. Then it's not simply an atomized world out there for us to exploit, but a world that speaks of the goodness of its creator. Oh, we ought to be transformed inside and out. Last week I talked to you about how I've been studying a bit of mycology this past year. Fungus and mushrooms. Just get interested in things. That's my only answer to you, people. When you ask me, why do you, why do you talk about that kind of stuff? Well, I just, it's fascinating. Because it's, it's theology. There's a famous mycologist who died recently. And 15 years ago, he had received a heart transplant. He had been given a bad lot in life. And he lived basically at the Mayo Clinic for some time. His heart was absolutely defective as it goes. He finally received a transplant. And it led him to continue living. And the person interviewing this mycologist, this expert in fungus and mushrooms, he said, well, let's talk personally. Let's quit talking about the mushrooms. How has this reality affected your life? And with tears in his eyes, because you can hear the crack in his voice, he talks about what it means to live with the organ of someone else in your body, the gift, the sheer and absolute gift this is. Because I guess the first thing is, is that you learn not to worry about small stuff and then you remember everything is small stuff. If you go back and find this man's famous TED Talk, he talks about his life growing up. He said that his mother was one of those people who would, who would save and scrimp and save to get the fancy china, but they would never pull the china out until it was good. That was the phrase. We're going to pull out the china when it's good. Like, like when we have an event good enough for the china, that's when we'll pull it out. And then there was always on that sofa, that nice sofa she scrimped and saved for, there was always that 
awful sound and shine of plastic over it that you're only going to unzip it and let people sit on its plushness when it gets good. When it's good, that's how you'll know because we'll unzip the plastic off the sofa. And he looked at the audience and he goes, I'm here to tell you it's already good. Life's already good. Don't wait. And he says, I eat on my china everything now and I never sit on a plastic sofa in my house. There are things that bring transformation to our mind and to our life. And they should all in some way pale in comparison to the fact we were sinners alone in the darkness, saved by the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. So be different. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think in a lot of American Christianity for far too long, this has been reduced to a type of moralism. A type of moralism. You know, like my old football coach used to tell me, long bonds, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do. Like there's a list somewhere of things that we, we really draw the, the sharp line in the sand for, where there's another list of things that we know aren't so good, but we make allowances, you know. Oh boy, we're a very inconsistent church. I might have to suggest that. We're very inconsistent when we account for sins in the world. I remember being in college, this young woman invited me to a party and I told her I didn't drink. She goes, what are you, straight edge? I don't even really know what that is today. I know it's a lifestyle about more clean living. There was a a big X she wore on her wrist so that she was straight edge. I said, no, I'm just just a Christian and I don't really believe in drinking before age and all this, that and the other. I I probably was a big nerd in college. Before long, the rumors got to be spread that I was one of those straight-as-an-arrow types. Goody-goody. Is that what it means to have your minds transformed and your life renewed and changed and transfixed? No, I don't think so. Because this whole thing fits in a particular context. Eric McDonald's been teaching our Wednesday night Bible class. He's a PhD student over at Emory, and he teaches it in our library, and he likes to quote his seminary professor. He says this, Jesus Christ is king, and context is queen. I like that. Say it with me. Jesus Christ is king, and context is queen. That's right. Context helps us to understand and unlock meaning. I think one of the social contexts that is all around here is that there are no VIPs in God's kingdom. There are no VIPs in God's kingdom. There are no very important persons in God's kingdom. I don't care how long you've belonged to a congregation. I don't care how much you give to the congregation. I don't care how much you make. I don't care if you are a member of the DAR. I don't care. I'm related to George Washington. It gets me no extra points in the kingdom of God. Amen? I said, some of you just rolled your eyes. He's not, he's not George Washington. He's too short. Well, it's right here, guys. we got a spirit. 
When I was up at the General Assembly for the Disciples of Christ this past summer in Louisville, Kentucky, they talked about the kingdom of God, but they didn't call it kingdom, they called it kingdom. They explained the first night that this Greek word basileia means king and kingdom and all that stuff. But of the range of meaning, they thought it could mean more, even something of kin. And the thing is, you and I are not accustomed to living under a king or a monarch. Although, when you conceive of it, you understand the point. Uh, the monarch sits on the top of a social ladder of being, and we're all down here somewhere. And in true kingdom fashions, there's, there's different stations along the way where power and prestige are held. And amongst the range of meaning, this professor of New Testament from Isle of School of Theology said, kin could work as well. What is a kin? Oh, you know what kin are, don't you? Because you've got kinfolk aplenty. The anthropologist Marshall Salins at the University of Chicago talks about kinship thinking. And when you live in a world that's based on kinship thinking, what it means is, is that you are an extension of me. That's how I imagine the world. You are an extension of me, and I am an extension of you. And so we are called not to be VIPs in a kingdom, and certainly we can be no very important person in God's kingdom. We're all family bought by the same blood, living by the same blood. Now, there are ways that the church has paid a lot of lip service to this kind of behavior. We we can probably name some churches or experiences we've had that have had people, maybe in the context of the church, whose point of view didn't seem to be as important as others, or maybe they had a disability and therefore their point of view didn't rank as high as someone else's. It's all enough that we can make room for someone and even maybe make them feel included, but what does it really mean to include? Henry Nouwen, that great practical theologian, had careers up and down the top universities in our country. He gave it all up to go serve at La Arche, which is French for the word the Ark. And in La Arche communities, there are people with disabilities live there full time, and their caregivers live there with them. The point of La Arche is that there isn't a structure between caregiver and care receiver. It's everyone's brought down into basic community together. And so he went from being this person who's written books and articles and essays and being recognized in people coming to hear him and follow him to sitting with people who had no clue who he was. He writes this in the book, In the Name of Christ. He always preached to his friends that we don't do ministry alone. And so he was invited to give a talk somewhere, one of these uh, well-known academic institutions. And so he sets off to go. But before he goes, one of the patients, one of his friends, says, well, Henry, who are you going to take with you? Because we don't do ministry alone. We don't do ministry alone. That's what you always say. And he sighed. He thought, yeah, we don't. So he, why don't you come with me? And he took him. And then they went, and his friend sat next to him on a 
dais, a table up in front of everyone, and Henry gave his speech, and he thought, okay, I got through that okay. As he stepped aside, the applause continued on. His friend stepped up to the microphone, and he thought, oh my gosh, what's he going to say? And he uttered some offering of greeting in the name of Jesus. And he looked at Henry now and said, we do ministry together, that's right. We don't do ministry alone, do we? It's a profound lesson. To help us get our minds wrapped around this context, it's important to remember there is an organic metaphor for the church. The church is to be the body of Christ, made up of many parts with different gifts for one purpose. You hear that old expression, many hands make light work. It's because it's a true expression. It has veracity to it. And so it is with the church. Not one of us can do everything. We need each other and the unique gifts and stories of one another and the unique points of view and the unique minds of each other to come together to form this body that does the work of God. Now, the temptation is to valorize certain gifts over and apart others. In the church, we can think that maybe the preacher has the most prominent role because they stand up in front of you and they speak. But let me tell you, I could preach the best sermon ever under, under the clouds of heaven. And if there was no hospitality here, how far and how long do you think that would get, go for? Or what about those who make people, make hospitality possible at a church? I was once at a church in the suburbs of Chicago. I was a member there, and we had a retention pond in front of it. And you know what retention ponds attract? Geese. And do you know what geese leave? Don't say it out loud. We'll call it a minefield. And every so often we'd have this starting point class where we would sit with people who'd been visiting the church. We'd find out uh, where they were uh, coming from, who they were, what they wanted to know about the church, and so on. And see, and see at the end of it, we would we'd hopefully include them into the life of our church and its ministries. So I got through this one session and found out that this couple had come to the church and that they, they, they loved the preaching and then they loved the music. It's really, frankly, all the same stuff that people say. Everyone's hospitable and warm. And then they said, how can we get involved and we had a little workbook planned up of things that you could do. And they just didn't want to do anything that was in front of people. They, they had no interest in, in being up front speaking or leading in singing. They said they couldn't sing. They had no interest in doing accounting work or, or asking for uh, donations for the budget. They didn't have any of those skills. They, they simply said, Pastor, I, I noticed that you got a lot of geese out there. Yes, yes, we do. And he says, I noticed that the geese leave a bit of a mess out there. I said, yeah, they do. He goes, how about I start something called the Goose Patrol? I said, well, by Jove, I think there might be a place for you at the church. It's funny, but it's not. Because every week they showed up before anybody else, little broom and dustpans and cleaned up so that people wouldn't track in goose mess so that they could be focused on each other in the worship of God. Friends, you all have a gift, maybe more than one. We all have gifts in this organic body. 
But here's the thing of it. We tend to overvalue some. We tend to undervalue some. But we will suffer loss when one of those gifts goes away. Contrary to the title of the sermon, I've never exactly had plantar fasciitis. But I have had a heel thing that's oddly related to plantar fasciitis. You see, the title is called, We Don't Tend to Think About Our Heel Until We Have Plantar Fasciitis. How often have you thought about the heel on your foot? Probably not very much until it was swollen and in pain. I was taking the youth group down to some week-long youth thing, and I was wearing flip-flops the whole week, and I could feel the back of my heel just barking. By the time I got home, it became really inflamed, and at night I fell asleep. And, you know, I didn't move my ankle at all very much, so everything got stiffer in there. And then I had to arise to use the restroom. And I remember trying to get out of bed and my wife hearing me just bark out like a dog in pain. I couldn't put any weight even on a toe. I crawled to the bathroom that day. I never have ever thought about the heel on my foot. Never once gave it much thought until I couldn't use it. Isn't that the way God has made us as people and the church? We might overlook the gifts of another until they're gone. We might exclude people because of intellectual disability. We might push people away who have a different political point of view. But at what cost? At Peachtree, we do a lot of this ministry well, the ministry that I'm hoping that you're hearing me talk about. Our fellowship ministry that works with all the meals after church. If you go down there, there is no elitism in this group. Not everyone's from the same background at all, but what they have in common is a roll-up-your-sleeves attitude that wants to serve the mission of the church. And there they are, all together, different backgrounds alike, not considered is how much they make. Not considered is what they do for a living. What's considered is their love. We had a hospice ministry when I first became senior minister, and Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown's daughter was dying in that hospice care facility, and I remember getting phone calls from the British tabloids. That's the only reason why I knew that she was there. And at the same time, we had a member of our congregation who was saying goodbye to a loved one in that space, and they told me that there was no extra special care or less care for anyone else because of celebrity status. Our kids' ministry, running up and down the second hall, our kids aplenty, running after their teachers who teach them, who care for them, who tell them the stories of Jesus. Never once has my kid asked for the resume of one of their teachers. Never once has my kid asked the voting record of one of their teachers. Never once have they asked anything but, I'm sure, just about, can I have snack? And right now, as Reverend Bond said, we have respite on the first floor on Tuesdays. People who happen to have dementia are not treated as patients, and the volunteers are not treated as caregivers. They're all treated as participants in the ministry. And there's one, one of our participants is increasing right now their cognitive ability. It's actually going in reverse a little. And they wait all week, every day, asking, when can we go back? When can we go back to where my friends are? Now, there are some areas we can work on this. 
And let me just tell you a few. If there were a person in our congregation who felt called to speak by God, what up here tells them that they are invited to the chancel? By the eye test, I would suggest to you that this says that only certain people are allowed to walk up here. I may just be my opinion, but I'll, I'll stand by it. I, I think that it would be better for us to have accessibility even to the chancel because not only able-bodied people can speak. And for that matter, anytime we have our accessibility to our building uh, broken, why isn't it first priority to go fix? Political points of view. I hear it in the hallways, just like people are talking in their own businesses, as a matter-of-fact thing. I really wish that partisan politics would just fall by the wayside. Yeah, yeah, be a good citizen. Great. But my hope's in Jesus, and that's what I'm trying to tell you. And sometimes if we do the ministry right, we're going to look more progressive, and sometimes we're going to look more conservative. It's going to be a mess. It's a messy kingdom. But I wouldn't want to push anyone out. Sometimes it's financially. Sometimes we separate each other financially by judgment of clothing or how they comport themselves and so on. There's ways that we can work on this because the thing of it is we are all brought together, extensions of one another, and we're made better for it, and it will hurt to lose pieces and expressions and hearts and voices and eyes that we overlooked. I'm going to leave you with this poem that we've heard several times, but it's one worth repeating by Edwin Markham. He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle and took him in. I hope that you experience a body of Christ that has ever-widening circles. How else are people going to find the love of Jesus Christ if they haven't first been included and invited to belong, even before they believe?